What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Lani, I mean, you're basically an expert on pop culture in general, as well as a best-selling author yourself, as well as a podcaster yourself. So I really want to talk to you about franchises, right? And one thing that I kind of feel, and I want to see if I'm right, because I feel like you're much more expert than me on this, is that this dominance that we have right now in pop culture of these very old franchises from, you know, Marvel to Sherlock Holmes to, you know, Terminator and Alien... It seems to me that we're we're still kind of struggling to get out from under the shadow of kind of social values of 30 years ago or 60 years ago or 120 years ago. Yeah. And that that is sort of holding back what we're able to do in terms of, you know, equality basically and representation. Yeah, um I, I think there are a lot of complicated factors coming along with that. A lot of it is that until the audience uh, got to a point where they were demanding it, like right now even though we should have known better for a really long time, we didn't do better because nobody was demanding better. So we finally got to a point where the audiences are demanding better. And the first step that happens in that is that the people who have been in charge and who have been making these decisions and who've been telling stories predominantly from the perspectives of, you know, I mean, let's like, you know, the white cishet, able, like all of those, you know, kind of, and as I say default identities, please hear the quote fingers that I'm making, because that is a very, very toxic mindset to think of that as default. But those are the people who have been in power. Those are the people who've been writing the stories. Those are the people who've been directing them and producing them and all of that. So what they start with is, okay, we're going to have a judge who has two lines in it, but she's going to be, get this, get this, a black woman and everybody's like oh my god right you know um and all the way down to where we have we're starting to get now which is uh where we're starting to get people above the line who are from a diverse you know set of backgrounds which is incredibly important because when you have one perspective that is constantly ruling all of the stories then what you get is kind of a sense that the only perspective that we can really see things from is that one and so culturally that's something we reflect ourselves back at ourselves in our stories and we got into a space where we had corrupted stories because we weren't reflecting all of ourselves back at all of ourselves and making a space for everybody to see themselves 
themselves, not just that there's somebody present on screen who, you know, looks like you, but that there's somebody present on screen who is treated as a fully complete human who is from your same neighborhood, you know, whether that be a physical neighborhood or kind of a cultural neighborhood. And so we're in the process of doing that now. And it's been a long uh, you know, it's been a long tail getting here and we certainly are not done. But the the age of the franchise, I don't think is as much of the problem. The fact that the source material was made in that is as much of the problem as the fact that we still kind of live in that, that, that even as we are getting more and more people above the line and by, you know, above the line, I mean the highly, the people making the creative decisions because we're getting more people from diverse backgrounds above the line, we're getting more diverse stories now, but it is something that still needs evening out. Out, you know, in order to make up for all of that kind of grasp on the culture that has been like an incredibly, incredibly white perspective. Absolutely. And, and let's kind of be, be very fair to studios right now. And I want to, I want to sort of set out a little bit of the, the situation. Like, why is it that studios rely on franchises? Why is it that there are so many adaptations, reboots, remakes? Um, because it's not just there are no new ideas. It's there are commercial reasons for this, right? And as businesses, there are reasons that they they choose to do this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, like, if you're talking about um, just like major movie theater releases, absolutely. Like, uh, and what's happened is that everything has tightened. Even before COVID hit, and people absolutely stopped going to movies, we had uh, changes in technology. We had the um, you know bigger TVs that we can have in our living rooms. I actually have a projector and like a hundred and eight inch screen. Yum. Um, which was glorious when we did our Lord of the Rings day at home. So people are being able to get, you know, surround sound and all that at more affordable prices. I mean, they're still not everybody. They're still not available to everybody, but at more affordable prices than they used to be. While movies started becoming more expensive because fewer people were going. Then you go and you pay, you know, $45 for a ticket and $108 for a bucket of popcorn. And you're like, well, why don't I just watch this on the TV at home? Is it really worth it? So we've had a lot of economic factors that have kind of gone into the squeeze on um, on commercial movies. Uh, movie theater releases. So there's a lot of stuff like that that's been involved in it. So then you have people who were at the point where they are not willing to do the smaller budget, take a chance, independent kind of thing anymore. They're really going for stuff where they know they've got a built-in audience. And when you're talking about a franchise, you know, that has been 50, 60, sometimes 70, 80 years in the making, you know, if you're talking about like the early, you know, Stanley, Jack Kirby stuff, your Captain's America and stuff like that from way back, there's so much built-in audience there. And if you can do it with enough things that kind of take advantage of the movie environment, right? You know, the big surround sound and the booming, you know, um, specially placed stereo system and the seats that recline back and then this incredible like special visual effects. Those are things that lend themselves to the reason why we will pay that much money to go out to a movie. Um, without aging myself, I want to say it was two bucks when I was a kid to get a <laughs> ticket at the local multiplex, you know, and go see, you know, the latest Steve Martin romantic comedy with Lily Tomlin, you know. So, so we've come a long way. Everything has changed and also when I was that age and it was two dollars to go see a movie theater my television home I think was like a 
19 inch and that was woo big deal you know so we had so many different effects but i think that the the covid effect in which we've had a lot of things going directly to various streaming services that would have been major theatrical releases are also kind of opening up this space where that's going to be an expectation for people so i'm interested to see what happens with major movie releases going forward if it's going to tighten down even more and be completely only franchises and things that have have shown that they will um, will perform well in the theaters or if it's going to open back up a little bit because that pressure is gone now right you know like if you're if you're competing with everything that's on tv where we've got in television and netflix um we've got a lot more competition of these new ideas new people making new things getting lots of attention to where we've got them doing original marvel releases now on disney plus it's it's a very interesting extremely volatile uh system ecosystem that they've got going on so all of these changes are are kind of interacting with each other it's interesting to see what's going to happen yeah, it does feel like a, like an incredibly unsettled time, doesn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. But it is also a time when, especially superhero movies, let's talk about them for, for a minute, because again, you're an expert. I know a bit. I've, I've covered quite a few of them um, for work, but they have come to dominate even blockbuster filmmaking. Even within that niche, they are the biggest niche. And they seem to have maybe not quite a formula for success or an infallible formula for success, but are pretty close to that. Like they, they seem to break even more reliably than pretty much anything else. So what is it about the superhero movie that has kind of helped this moment happen? You know, again, I think there's a lot of factors contributing to that. Um, I think that the superhero movie in a time when we are kind of facing our own internal darkness, like there is thematically something about watching people really struggle and fight for good. It's less, our, our superheroes now are less of the cleft chin standing in the wind with their fists on their underwear, you know, kind of big, always good, always doing the right thing, always knowing better than everybody else. always stronger than everybody else. We have superheroes now who are trying to do good, but who are incredibly fallible. And I think Tony Stark is probably one of the the best examples of a superhero who, um, is he? Is he? Is he a hero? Is he a villain? We're not really sure. There's a lot about Tony Stark that is very dark, that is very gritty. And so... I think part of it is that we are going to these characters now at this time, superheroes are big because we are all struggling with, are we good people? I think maybe, I mean, I'm thinking that's a lot of what the struggle is happening uh, right now Um, culturally is we're all kind of looking at our darkness as a culture and seeing that reflected within ourselves. So I think that's part of it. I think that, again, the the built-in franchise is a big part of it. The fact that they, they lend themselves to the kind of visual bombast that we like to get in a movie theater experience all of those things kind of work together and it's just kind of like a petri dish of exactly the right conditions to make superhero stories explode at this time and while some of that like the the fact that we have you know 20 minute action scenes that for me as a narrative expert go on a little bit long like i get it you can blow things up and the visuals are beautiful but i'm here for your story (laughs) i want to see tony stark struggle to make this decision to do the sacrifice play But I think that, you know, we have all of these things working together at a very particular time. And I think that that is definitely part of it, that we want to see people struggle with goodness and what is more about goodness and doing the right thing than a superhero story. And there is also a sneaky kind of left wing, right wing thing where 
some right-wing figures at least seem to think the superheroes are on their side, if you will, because they are the individualists who are stepping in when government fails. And the left-wing tend to think that the superheroes are sort of on their side, if you will, because they tend to be sticking up for the little guy and not generally, obviously, raising taxes on the poor or something. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. There's this weird, like, uh, in-between position that they all take. It's a magic mirror and everybody can see themselves reflected in it. And that is, I think, a very deliberate, they ride that line in a way that it can be read from two different perspectives in two different ways. And then they have to really take a stand. Although we do see a lot of, you know, as we get characters that were originally white recast, characters originally male recast, uh, we see that there's a certain section of the population that gets very, very, ver- like, very upset about it and, and expresses that very much on on Twitter and various uh, social media spaces. And so we're having some of that as well. But, you know, my feeling is that those those numbers are small but loud and that most people are like, yeah, great. Let's go ahead. Let's see what you got, you know. Absolutely agree. I want to ask you more about that in a minute, but I want to specifically talk for a moment about female superheroes because they, for years, lagged behind their male contemporaries. Even someone like Wonder Woman, who was a big noise. I was at least, I at least grew up seeing Wonder Woman reruns. I don't think they were, I'm not quite old enough to have seen them on TV kind of live, but they were on TV when I was little and I would go to play group and I would play it being Wonder Woman. And yet she didn't get a, a film until 2017 you know, 40 years nearly after Superman, yeah, 30 years after Batman, you know, why did it take so long for the women to follow? Because there is a belief, and I'm, I'm not sure, I mean, you know, the source of it, if you think about it, is cultural misogyny, maybe, you know, I mean, certainly that's a source of a lot of bad things. But there is this idea that a woman can't lead a film. There is this idea that a woman can't be a stand-up comic because women, quote unquote, are not funny, which is absolutely patently ridiculous, right? But this is an idea. And so when you have, you know, pardon me for saying so, but a lot of straight white men at the top making these decisions, they look at their money and they say, this isn't going to fly because it's a woman and nobody goes to see women in superhero films. Now, you know, we have proven that false. It is not the fact that it's a man doing these things, but that it is, is a person doing these things. But the ability also at the same time, which contributes to the difficulties that women have in these films is, is not just that a woman is leading it, but that a woman is writing it, that a woman is directing it, that a woman is behind the scenes on this. We talk about 2017's like really super feminist, supposedly feminist like Wonder Woman, but if you look at the people who are behind it, it is all men. There's two women who are in the top production tier of like, I don't know, 15 people. And the two women, one of them is the daughter of one of the male producers and one of them is the wife of Zack Snyder. Deborah Snyder is, is on this, this list of people. So when you have predominantly people from that same traditional mindset, you know, of this is how things are, they tend to see women as women and not see women as people. And when you write any story about someone who is not presented as a whole and complete person, that story is going to pale. Not because it's a woman leading it, but because the people making the creative decisions about it didn't see her as a full and complete person, which is something we're still struggling with. If you watch Catwoman or, or you know, Supergirl, the original TV, uh, the original movie rather than the TV show, you see that 
for days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you really do. Well, I mean, yeah, we see these. I did a, a clip. I was teaching this in my storytelling class at Syracuse University, and I did a clip in which I compared the the introduction of the of the female characters in uh, Ryan Coogler's Black Panther as opposed to the introduction of Black Widow in Iron Man 2. And what we see is a lot of, of boobs, you know, for Black Widow. Uh, Black Widow, I have a supercut where she takes down, like, I don't know, I think it was five. It was five men with her vagina where she does that. She runs up. She throws her thighs. She spins around their head and then they fall over. And that itself is a move. And somebody was like, oh, well, you know, that's a martial arts move. I'm like, great. When I see a man do it in one of these movies, then you can make that argument. But right at this point, this is how we introduce Black Widow. And then we have the the female characters in Black Panther who were treated as, as real, capable humans. I went to see that with my 15-year-old daughter, who was at that time interested in going into STEM. She is now a computer science major at the University of Arizona. And she... Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Because no one had ever presented like a character like Shuri, a capable woman who was able to do something without a man telling her what to do and telling her how to do it. It was incredibly um, moving to go to that movie as a woman and feel the, the absence of the slap. Right. You always as a woman, you go to these movies and you feel that slap, you feel that inner cringe. And because I had grown up with that and didn't know what it was like not to have it to go to a movie where that was absent at I don't know, what was I, 46, 47 when that movie came out? Um, I it was shocking to me. Like it was a shocking experience and I loved it. It it is genuinely, and I don't think men understand this, it is genuinely like a, an electric shock sometimes when you go to these movies and you're like, Oh, that's me. And and the reason men don't understand it is they've had it with like every movie their entire lives. And they've never even learned how to appreciate a movie where you don't have it. Whereas I think we've had to, we've had to say, well, okay, I don't see myself in this movie, but you know, I still appreciate it. I still love it. I don't think, not not all men, but I don't think a lot of men have ever really had to learn to do that because they've seen themselves in every movie. Yeah, well, based on your particular axes of privilege, there are certain things that you are encouraged not to see. My friend, uh, Dr. Charisse Laprie says that media literacy is seeing the things that you're actively encouraged not to see. And I absolutely love that quote. And I think that we are actively encouraged not to see certain things. And if you kind of sit on a pile of privileges, of various privileges, it's going to be a lot harder for you to be like, well, what? We put a woman in it. 
right? We gave you something without realizing that it's not their job to give us something. It's their job to make room for us. And by us, I don't just mean like, you know, the, the various, uh, you know, groups that we represent, but everybody. And it is a transition. It definitely is. And sometimes it can be really hard to see. And I know that as a white woman, I've had circumstances where there have been things that I have missed. And when somebody points them out to me, I'm like, oh, you know. And the thing is, I can't, I can't sit here and feel terrible about the fact that I didn't see it, but I can take that responsibility to work harder to see it from this point forward. And I think at the most part, that's what we are trying to do. I think that I'm seeing studios and TV productions doing more and more women, people of color, LGBTQIA+. They're getting in there in those creative positions more and more. And we are responding. Those are, you know, shows and and movies that are getting a real response from us culturally because we've all been just dying for this. So I'm excited on that end of things. I see the progress that we're making and I try to hold on to that, you know. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, uh, I think, a key point, like even aside from the moral argument, right, that everyone should be able to go to the movies and see themselves, even aside from that, it is good commercial and storytelling sense. I have seen a, a group of guys get together and pull off a scam before. I had not seen strippers do it until Hustlers, you know, um, I had seen superhero movies. I had not seen an African superhero until Black Panther and it gave it a completely different feel and it felt exciting and it felt fresh and it felt different. Even though the story is for most of its running time, not that different, but it, this is, this is what, studios are missing out on when they just, you know, stick in another very handsome dude called Chris. Exactly. You know, and I've got nothing against dudes called Chris. No, absolutely. You know, Some of my best friends. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think, I think, however, that the more we see each other in our culture and it, especially in our storytelling, like our storytelling reflects us back at ourselves. Our storytelling tells us what is right and wrong. And when we have storytelling that sees everyone as human and complex and allows for somebody other than a white man to be like, you know, broken and flawed, you know, like right now we, we will spend all of our time with these Tony Sopranos who like, oh my God, this poor rich mob boss who's killing people, but he feels really conflicted, not about the killing, but just like generally conflicted. So let's spend eight seasons watching him still continue to murder people and not make emotional progress. But we can see him as being complex because he is a white man. When you're talking about basically any other, you know, kind of identity, that if we give them any moral complexity, it, you know, suddenly it's like, well, we can't handle that because we don't see them as fully human. You know, once we start getting dark and complex stories with people from different identities, then we're really making progress. When we spend eight seasons, you know, looking at the navel lint of, you know, a woman who is selling meth on the side, you know, um, while she's being a chemistry teacher, then we're going to, you know, be starting to make some real progress. I think I've seen Shonda Rhimes do some of this, especially with How to Get Away with Murder. I think she's been doing amazing work in this ahead of her time for a long time. She has led us to this path, you know. Um, so I credit her with a lot of the progress that we have made and also showing that that can be incredibly, you know, financially rewarding for the studios that back her. But again, it's a prog- it's a process. We're still in the middle of it. I like seeing where we're going. I feel really good about the direction this is going. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think needs to happen? Because I, I, think, I think you're entirely right, basically. I think you, we need these new creators to come in, to have enough of a say, to have enough of a voice, 
to be able to say, no, that's not right. That's not authentic. Let me do it this way. Uh, that's not you know complex enough. That's not interesting enough. We need uh, people to take risks. But you know what are what are the steps that that kind of need to keep happening? Because okay, what what feels different to me is I used to you know write about box office stories in the early noughties, and every single time there was a sort of female led hit, it would be written off as a sleeper hit. No one could have seen this coming. Yeah, right. Nobody knew Devil Wears Prada was going to be big, right? Nobody. How knew, would that happen? Mamma yeah. Mia, a, a hit! What a surprise! It's female led. How could that happen? Bizarre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I don't think we're getting that write-off anymore people are going oh this is a hit and studios will want to replicate this and I feel like that's a big change on what used to used to happen uh yeah journalism is a huge part of it too and again you know like uh, there's a lot of criticism that comes down in this arena and I think that we do need to take a breath and have some um, empathy and compassion for people who are in the culture because when you are in the culture you see things the way the culture trains you to see it. And so a lot of writers who were like, oh, this is a sleeper hit, were not necessarily expressing misogyny themselves. They were just channeling cultural misogyny through them because it was trained in them. And so while, yes, that needs to change, and I fully, you know, at the same time, I am I'm not interested in demonizing individuals in this. I think we're all in it as a team one way or the other, and we all have to pull together. Um, I think that the first thing that needs to happen is that culturally behind the scenes, uh, a lot of these studios and, and, you know, big money commercial enterprises um, need to clean up what's going on behind the scenes, as we've seen recently, you know, there was the whole, of course, Harvey Weinstein kind of thing that when in when behind the scenes, certain people of power are able to do whatever they want, then we know that nothing has actually changed, that they're just responding to market forces. And it's always going to be shallow. You know, the recent relevations about Joss Whedon, which of course have been, you know, I've been following closely as somebody that covers Joss Whedon properties professionally, has been really, really disturbing. I read everything about, um, like Ray Fisher's accounts and Charisma Carpenter's accounts. And the thing that we had in both of those instances was that the the major high ups were not paying attention because we can we are more powerful. We can destroy these people. And when that is the attitude behind the scenes, that is going to ripple out through everything else. So the big thing is hiring more and more people from diverse backgrounds, making sure that you live to these new values, not just, you know, like put somebody on screen who is from this background and then do colorblind casting, colorblind writing, colorblind casting and writing are not helpful. We need to be able to acknowledge who people are and still let them be human. And that is a process that we're in. So clean up the act behind the scenes, make sure that the culture at the studios represents all of these values that we are we are now saying we live to, right? Because they're popular culturally. When they're cleaned up behind the scenes, it's going to get cleaned up in front. When we've got people from different backgrounds in those high-powered positions, then we're going to see that reflected in all of the stories. And then we can get past a lot of this. You know, we need one of the problems we're having now is that we don't have enough you know, stories from different identities from those perspectives now. You know, I had a class in which we did the story, uh, the movie Love, Simon, which, you know, features a, an extremely privileged young kid whose parents are completely 100% behind him in his coming out process. And that's really nice. But one of my students was like, well, that wasn't my experience. You know, like none of that. We didn't have money. My parents didn't support me. My friends were weird. Like, you know, all of that stuff. And I'm like, yeah. And also, like, shouldn't, you know, LGBTQIA, also have funny little frizzy stories 
that are just fun, that are just a good time. And until you have enough stories, then when we allow enough of these stories from different identities to allow different kinds of stories in those spaces where every, you know, LGBTQ narrative does not need to be a story of horrible struggle and pain and isn't it terrible and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Don't we suffer, you know? then I think that we're going to be, we're going to see ourselves in a better place when we start to see, again, more complex, more varied stories coming from all identities, then we're going to be able to to really know that we've made some real progress. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that, that that's the problem, isn't it? You know, there was... There were complaints back in the day about, let's say, you know, uh, the killer in a in a thriller turns out to be a gay person or or trans person or queer coded, yeah, yeah or queer coded, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and the problem with that is not that no gay person could ever be the killer. The problem is if we're only seeing gay people on screen when they are the killer, exactly, that's an issue. And that was that's what we need to move past, hundred percent. That that's a great point. Because it addresses one of the questions I was going to ask, which is about the sort of slightly tokenistic nature sometimes of some representation that we're seeing. You know, if you look really closely at the live action Beauty and the Beast, there is a gay character in it, but you really have to look. And and it feels like that also is beginning, people are beginning to stand up and say, no, that's not enough. That's not going to do it. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There is, again, there's this term queer baiting which is where we're like, oh, this is going to be, you know, an LGBTQ story. And then it is not, you know, but we're like, oh, we're hinting at it. So this is our, you know, thing. When, When Cap goes to group therapy and there's a guy who's been on a date, an unnamed character who's been on a date with a man, and we're all like, hey, it's the first, you know, gay character. No, it is not. You know, you do not get a cookie for that, you know, um, you know, and, and when we have these things like Rise of the Skywalker, right, there's a there's a lesbian kiss in the background of one of the scenes and the character is present throughout. But is that's not representation. And the very fact that people are like, here, look, I did this. Where's my cookie? Shows me that the culture behind the scenes has not evolved as much as we need it to. And I, I do really appreciate that people are being like, hey, no cookie for you. Go back to the drawing board and work harder next time and give us something real. And I like that people are demanding that. I like that that we're not all like, oh, yeah, no, that's really great. Super, super, you know. Um, and I really appreciate that. I, I was actually personally like horribly offended by that uh, shot in Endgame. Mm-hmm. Uh, with all the ladies. Like oh. here we have all of our yeah. super ladies. It's yeah. I was watching that and I was all I heard in my head was, here you go, girls. You happy now? Now shut up. You got three seconds in this, you know, entire movie. Although the, the, there were female stories and characters throughout. But, you know, but we, we gave you this shot. We showed you how much we appreciate you. Now shut up. That felt like a now shut up moment to me. And I was like, oh, no, darling, you have got to go back to work. I, I have to wrap it up, unfortunately. But I, I do want to ask before you go, there's a question we've been asking everybody, which is for an underrated film by or starring a woman or a non-binary person that you think not enough people have seen and people need to look out for. Oh, God, I really love Can You Ever Forgive Me? Um, it's oh, a lesbian amazing. woman's story, right? Fabulous. Uh, based on the book written by that woman, Lee Israel, um, in a screenplay written by a woman and a gay man, Nicole Hall of Center and Ave- Avenue Q's Jeff Witte, uh, produced by women, directed by women. And it's a story in which a lesbian and a gay man are centered, but their lesbian and their gayness is not what the story is about. 
She does not suffer because she is a lesbian. He does not suffer because he is a gay man. They suffer because they are complicated and kind of amoral and so much fun. I've watched it, I don't know, I was introduced to it um, from my daughter and watched it three or four more times since and have watched it with all of my friends. Whenever we're all sitting around and we're like, ah, what do we want to watch? I'm like, this is what we want to watch. So I would absolutely recommend that. And especially as the kind of thing that we're aiming for. This is the kind of story that, uh, you know, to quote Seth Meyers, that we need right now. Thank you so much for listening to Women vs. Hollywood. I've been your host, Helen O'Hara, and you can find my book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, anywhere that books are sold here in the UK. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. And to find us on social media, use the hashtag Women vs. Hollywood. This podcast is produced by Stripped Media with our executive producers Kobe Omanaka and Ella Watts and our producer Maddie Searle. The podcast artwork is by Steve Laird and thanks for listening. I will see you next time. You just heard a Stripped Media production.